This is uh, going to be a dangerous sermon, so I've worn my high-vis today. Thanks, Brad. So I keep with my Dutch heritage. That's why I just have a natural bent towards uh, orange, so love orange. Uh, what an interesting day, hey? We had the uh, elections yesterday, and we now have a new prime minister and a new, uh, a new government in. So uh, let's, how about we just pray quickly before we start, because that's a really big thing. It's a big day for our nation, a big change. So why don't we just stand up? Uh, together and just uh, commit that to the Lord. Well, God, we just bring um, Lord Anthony Albanese, our, our new leader, Father God, as well as the Labor Party, the new power, uh, power uh, government in our country. Lord, we bring them before you, Father God, and we thank you for their blessing, Lord God. Lord, that they would be blessed, that our nation would be blessed, that we all would be blessed, Father God. We thank you, Lord God, that as Christians, um, our, our politics does not inform our faith but our faith informs our politics, Lord God. Help us always to keep things the right way around, Lord God. And despite whether we're happy or disappointed by the result, Lord God, our trust is in you. Uh, and we're here, Lord God, not to divide over political lines, Lord God, but we're here for something greater, to be unified around the mission of Jesus Christ. Kings will rise and fall, nations will rise and fall, governments will come and go, but you remain the same, Lord God. And we continue to set our eyes on you, we continue to commit and pray for our nation and our leaders, Lord God, that they will do what is right in your eyes and that justice will prevail in your mighty name. Amen. 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 Big day for our country. So, so we've been talking about the um, seven practices or the core spiritual disciplines and uh, it was a great launch last week. It was great to hear uh, many of the life groups getting around this and people doing the discussions uh, and what have you. Uh, there was 128 unique visits uh, to the webpage, so southernlights.org.au forward slash practices, 128 unique visits there to go and practice uh, what we encourage you to practice and to look at the discussion questions uh, and to discuss them with a friend uh, or maybe uh, in your life group. So we started off last week looking at John 15 and abiding with Jesus, and this is really the core here of, of being a follower of Jesus Christ, and really a core of why we practice our faith. So Christianity uh, is not something that we believe in only. More importantly than belief is putting that belief into action. Everyone say, into action, and do some kind of action. You move your... <clears throat> not like a robot, but it's like running. Or you're... Christianity is about action. It's about movement. Okay, so we come out of the Gospels, the four Gospels about Jesus, and we go into the Acts of the Apostles, so the book of Acts, and there's action abounding. So first of all, we abide in order to be with Jesus, and you see that on the slide there. And in my life group, we had a great chat about this, and one of the main things that came out this week was the fact that, and this might be very simple, but the fact that abiding and being with Jesus and loving Jesus is the ultimate purpose of our faith. It's where everything begins. It's where everything ends. It's the purpose that is beyond ourselves. Because it's easy to think of being a Christian and following Jesus and just think of, well, this is a good thing for me to do. This is what I believe in. This is what I grew up with. Uh, this is healthy for me, for my family, uh, as a parent, as a grandparent, what have you. It's good to be a Christian. But abiding with Jesus goes beyond the benefits of Christianity to the depths, to the heart of the thing, and says, I love God. Jesus died on the cross for me. How could I ever repay that? I just want to love you. 
I want to be with you. I want to understand you. I want to grow in you. And that abiding with Christ, remaining with Christ, it says, in, abide is, in a, is a new American translation, and the NIV says, remain in Christ, to remain with him, which literally remains, to stick, to stay, to endure, to not get distracted, to not look to the right or the left, but to stay every day, even every moment, in loving relationship, unified with Jesus Christ, your Savior, your King, the Prince of Peace, not just because it's good for you, but more than that, because you love Him, He died for you, you want to be with Him, you realize that to be with Jesus, to spend time with Jesus, is the greatest thing that every, any human being could have. It's the thing that's actually worth investing into more than anything. And that being with Jesus then begins to form us like Jesus. Who knows that when you hang around someone, you start to pick up their ways of speaking or their ways of acting, or you often have common interests and hobbies start to come together. Because when you're with someone, especially when you're with Jesus, you begin to become like Jesus. And the ultimate thing that Jesus wants for you is not just for you to love him, not just for you to spend time with him and pray with him, not just for you to be like him, but ultimately to do something to do what Jesus did, to prophesy, to see miracles happen, to see cultures change, to see cities shift, to see lives transformed, to see people come to know Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Jesus wants you to love him and him to love you, remain in me as I remain in you, so that eventually there's fruit. If there's no fruit of your relationship with Jesus, then work needs to be done, because fruit, as we learned last week in John chapter 15, is the indicator that you are my disciples. I think I wrote it down here. It's in verse 8 of John chapter 15. My Father is glorified, Jesus says, that you bear much fruit. Fruit is important. Fruit gives away your intimacy with Jesus Christ. Are we bearing the fruit, not of what we think we should be doing, but are we bearing the fruit of Christ? And Jesus says right at the end of verse 8, Bring my Father glory, bear much fruit, so you prove to be my disciples. And the big question I want to ask you today, the big challenge I want to put to you today, is are you a Christian or are you a disciple? I want to make a little bit of a differentiation for us today between being a Christian and therefore adhering to a set of beliefs or being a disciple who follows Jesus closely and intimately? This is the big question. So the spiritual practices or disciplines we've been talking about, they put us in a position to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. Now, I'm going to warn you early so that no one has a heart attack at the end of the service. Everyone take a deep breath. <gasps> okay. Our practice for this week is going to be fasting. So I'm going to invite you this week to come with all of us and take a day Take a day where you abstain from food to practice that incredibly powerful spiritual practice of fasting. We'll get to that at the end today, but I just want to warn you early so that if you need to leave the service now, you can leave early and pretend to go to the toilet and zip out the back. Pretend you didn't... Well, actually, I'm telling you, so you can't say you didn't hear it, okay? But how do we transform? How do we get to this place where we be with Jesus, where we become like Jesus, where we change? Because... You look at Jesus, it's kind of right up here as tall as I can reach, and let's have a look at, 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 let's have a look at Caleb. 
Let's have a look at Brad, who's up here. Look, there's a big gap there, okay? So no one's here saying, look, we're pretty close to Jesus. Look, we're just, you know, a couple of, you know, small refinements and we'll be basically there. Like, we're all sitting here knowing there's an enormous gap between being like Jesus and doing what Jesus did and where we are. You know what bridges the gap? You know what brings transformation? It's practicing your faith. That's why this series, we're talking about the practices, prayer, scripture, fasting, solitude, Sabbath, living in Christian community. These are the the core practices. And there's many others, worship, celebration, serving, giving finances, hospitality. There's lots of practices, but we're really going to hone in on the seven core ones, which have been proven time and time again now for 2,000 years. And we're going to look at today how Jesus practiced these practices as a model for us. So we all know the well-known scripture of Romans 12.2 that says, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed. Okay, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to attest God's will, God's good, pleasing and perfect will. Okay, Romans chapter 12, verse, verse 2. So transformation is something that as Christians we believe is possible. The Greek word is metamorpho, so it's the same word that's used for the caterpillar becoming a butterfly. It's this idea that someone can become a completely new creation. This is a miracle. This is a miracle. With all of our inclination to the ways of the world, Jesus says, no, be transformed. Sorry, Jesus didn't say it. Paul said it. Be transformed by Jesus by the renewing of your mind. We are transformed by following Jesus. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are transformed by following Jesus. That's right. You tell them directly. You tell that person next to you. You are transformed by following Jesus. You know, when I was a kid, you were probably the same as me. I love McDonald's. You know, one of my, for my children, one of their early words for, I think, almost four out of, well, three out of four, because one's only a baby still, Three out of four, one of their early words was McDonald's, but in our house it actually got called Hot Donald's. I don't know how that happened. You know how that happens when you're raising kids? McDonald's became Hot Donald's. And I loved hamburgers. I could eat 50 hamburgers if you gave me to them. I absolutely love McDonald's. All my kids love McDonald's. Your kids, your grandkids probably love McDonald's. But something happened, a transformation happened later in life. I tasted real meat. I tasted real food. (laughs) Once I had tasted a proper prime cut of Wagyu beef, (laughs) McDonald's was put into perspective. The sugary bun, the disgusting chips, the oil. All I taste now if I eat McDonald's is oil, just pure oil. And McDonald's now has become a maybe once, twice a year event for me because I've tasted the true thing. (laughs) I've tasted good beef. I'm so love meat now that I've gone, even though I hate cooking and I'm not much of a cook, I've gone out and bought myself a Weber barbecue the last few years and I've learned to cook good meat because I want to eat good meat. And I realize if I want to eat good meat, I need to learn to cook good meat. And McDonald's has become a thing of the past. My taste buds had a transformation once I tasted something that was authentic. As a young adult, as a 17, 18, 19-year-old, I grew up in the church, 
pastor's kid, grew up in this church from the age of five, so I've been here a long time. You know, I was confronted like most teenagers with the question of, do I want to be a Christian? Do I want to kind of just have a set of beliefs that I adhere to and I tick Christian on the census every few years? A cultural Christian, basically a Christian meaning I'm not a Muslim or I'm not an atheist, that kind of Christian. Or do I want to be a disciple? Do I really want to follow this thing of Jesus and the way of Jesus, practice like Jesus, live like Jesus, think like Jesus? Do I want to devote my life to that? Now, most of my Christian friends from youth group and Christian friends from my Christian school and all of my Christian mentors that mentored me when I was a young man, all of, most of them have backslidden and fallen away from God for different reasons. It's difficult to follow Jesus closely. It's a hard thing. And I did not follow Jesus as a disciple, a devout, committed disciple to Jesus. Immediately on day one, when in my heart I said, yeah, I really want to do this thing properly at 17, 18. No, 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 no. It's been a process of transformation. You see, we often like to think of Paul, don't we, on the, whose name was Saul initially, on the road to Damascus, and a light comes in the sky, and Jesus appears to him, and he's transformed in a moment. All of a sudden, he goes from Saul to Paul, and then three days later, he's an apostle preaching the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. But transformation is often not like that. And even for Paul, many of us don't understand or know or we forget, he actually went into the deserts of Arabia for three years after that encounter on the road to Damascus. And then he reappears years later after he's lived in the wilderness, practicing practicing what it is to be a Christian in solitude and silence and alone. And then he comes back onto the scene as an apostle. But we miss that because our Bible just moves, moves, moves. The experience of Peter following Jesus is a lot more what it's like to transform. Most of us come to Jesus as a foolish, uneducated, ignorant fisherman that should never have been a follower of a rabbi like Jesus. We come out of a fishing boat and humble beginnings from nowhere, Galilee, the backwaters of nothing, with no royal blood, with no education. Remember they said to the disciples and Peter, these men, they speak in an incredible way, men without an education. For most of us, this is the process of transformation. It's this slow following of Jesus for three, three and a half years. And then even when Jesus has been so good and we've seen all the miracles, he dies on the cross and Peter and all the disciples Walk away. Peter denies him three times. His rabbi, his savior, his Messiah is hanging on a cross and all he can think about is self-protection. I don't know him. I, I wasn't with him. Could you imagine if you walked with someone day and night for three years and you were brutally crucified, you were put in the worst injustice impossible, you were locked away, you were treated poorly, and those guys that you'd poured your life into, slept next to, eaten with every day for three years were saying, I don't know him. Who is he? I'm not one of them. The process of transformation, it takes time. There's many ups and downs, many betrayals, many denials, many sins, many mess-ups. The important thing is, though, we're transformed slowly and surely by following Jesus Christ. Not just being a Christian and not adhering to a bunch of Christian beliefs, Transformation actually happens in the following of Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a lifelong spiritual apprentice 
of Jesus. Jesus offers every person. He says, come follow me. Essentially saying, I've got an apprenticeship if you'd like to sign up. Now, this may be a new word for us today. Not the word apprenticeship, because many of you have done an apprenticeship. Some of you are doing an apprenticeship. Some of you have done a university-style apprenticeship. Some of you have done a hands-on, tradie apprenticeship. Some of you have done an apprenticeship through the hard knocks of life and the hard knocks of business. So we know the word apprenticeship, but I want you today to think of apprenticeship in the sense of what it means to follow Jesus. You see, in the Gospels, Jesus is often called a rabbi, a teacher. So let me get this right. Matthew calls him rabbi, most of the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Luke uses the word master most of the time and John the word teacher. Essentially, they all mean the same thing, a rabbi, a master, a teacher. And ultimately, we know he was the Messiah, the promised Messiah, but he's not referred to as, hey, mate. And he's not even often referred to as God. The disciples didn't call him God. They didn't, when they said Jesus, they weren't saying Jesus, the son of God. They were still trying to work out whether he's really the son of God. And when he died on the cross, they're all thinking, nah, this wasn't the son of God. Oops, spent three years following who I thought was the Jewish Messiah. Mistake, put the hand up, go back to fishing, get on with my normal life. So they weren't convinced he was the son of God, but they were convinced of something. And that's that Jesus was a brilliant rabbi, a teacher like they'd never seen before. Someone who just the crowds loved him. He was a celebrity in first century Palestine. He was a rock star rabbi. He was somebody out of the Jewish uh, uh, community, Jewish rabbi schools of Torah and all these things that just totally flipped things on its head. He was like the radical rabbi, the rock star rabbi, the celebrity rabbi, the rabbi who appealed to young and old, appealed to female and male. He was the first to ever have female disciples in a totally male-dominated society. So let's step back a little bit before Jesus becomes a rabbi. What does it mean to be a rabbi in Jewish culture? Well, in Jewish culture, there was three levels of education. I have to do the right thing here and acknowledge John Mark Comer. I've stolen this from his teachings. The first was the house of the book, it was called. And this is where most young people would receive their education. So they would receive their education by memorizing the Torah, so the first five books of the Bible. In our Western tradition, we call that the Pentateuch. Uh, The the Jews call that the Torah. So it's called the house of the book. And as we know, uh, especially young males would have those first five books memorized by the age of 12. So how's your discipleship going? 12 years old, five books under their belt. For those that showed a little bit of talent in the Jewish law, they wouldn't take off at 12 years old to go and do an apprenticeship under their father, and women wouldn't take off at the age of 12 to go and marry and bear children. Oh, sorry, women would take off at the age of 12 to go and marry and bear children. But young men, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, that showed some talent for the law, for learning, for education, would be offered the second level of Jewish education called the house of learning. 
First level house of the book, second level house of learning. And this talent pool of young men would be taken on a deeper level of education, all based on the book, so the, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. But they would be taught to speak, they would be taught to read, to write, they'd be taught these kind of things. And then out of this very small pool was the third level of Jewish education, and that would be an apprenticeship to a rabbi. Now, this was the most difficult school that anybody could get into. There was a bunch of rabbis in first century uh, Judaism around the time of Jesus, a whole bunch of rabbis. The rabbi, the teacher, would have a place of phenomenal honor. Their intellect, their understanding of God, their intimacy with God, their, their understanding of the law. Young men would dream of being welcomed to a rabbi, to taking on the yoke of a rabbi. And this was a euphemism used in the first century for a rabbi's teaching. It was to take on my yoke, take on the burden of my teaching. And often the rabbi's teaching was a heavy teaching, a hard teaching, only for the most intellectual, the most devout of the most devout Jewish young men who wanted to become scribes and Pharisees. Think of Paul who said, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was one of the most talented, young, up-and-coming rabbis when Jesus called him to follow his different way. Now think of Jesus saying, come follow me. You see, every rabbi, in order to take on an apprentice, would eventually, after a very, very difficult process of recruitment and interviews, and testing may say to one or two young men apprentices, come follow me, take my yoke, my teaching upon you. Now the idea was that when you were offered that position as an apprentice of a rabbi, it wasn't like we understand, oh yeah, so drink a lot of coffee, go to the uni pub every now and again and do three classes a week. get paid you know, minimum wage and go to, go to TAFE once a week and then I'm on the job for days a week learning to become an apprentice and I can barely get fired even if I'm a horrible apprentice. It's all government protections. It was very different to that. The rabbi had all the power, the apprentice had no power. So the idea was that the apprentice would follow Jesus or follow the rabbi so closely they would live with them, they would sleep with them, they would eat next to them. Pastor Zoe said this in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, the idea was that they would be covered in the dust of their rabbi, their master, at the end of every day. That was the greatest hope of an apprentice, that by the end of the day, the dust of their rabbi would cover them from head to toe because they followed so well. The idea of the apprentice was to be with their rabbi to become exactly like their rabbi so that they could graduate to become and do just as their rabbi did and be a rabbi themselves. So when Jesus says, come follow me, this is radical because the call goes out to all men, all women, all people throughout all of human history. It's not just for the one or two. It's not just for the talented young men. It's not just for those that know the law well, Jesus says it to fishermen, he says it to tax collectors, 
He says it to prostitutes. He says it to Romans. He says it to Gentiles. He says it to young. He says it to old. He says, come, follow me. In Matthew 4.19, he says to Peter and his mates, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. In Mark 8.34, Jesus summons the crowd and his disciples, the crowd and his disciples, and he says to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. This was the yoke of Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So this is Matthew eleven twenty eight, And learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in heart. The complete opposite of the rabbis of the day who are hard, had high standards, heavy teaching, lots of power in the community. Jesus said, I'm humble and gentle in heart. My burden, my yoke is easy. It is light. The spiritual practices of Rabbi Jesus put us in a position to be with him, to follow him, to be a disciple, not just a Christian that, that believes loosely in the tenets of the faith. Christian life is an apprenticeship under the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. It begins in the heart. Everyone say heart. It moves to the soul, so the mind, the will, the emotions, and then it takes over our entire lifestyle. If you want to follow Jesus devoutly, and we've been talking about this the last couple of months, if you want to follow Jesus properly and deeply, it's eventually going to come after your habits, your Netflix habits, your online habits, your, 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 your non-committed habits, your missing church habits, Jesus will eventually come after that stuff. And he'll have big questions for you. The question is, will you let him in? Will you abide with him? Will you remain with him? Do you believe that being with Jesus and following Jesus and, and, and being close to him and being followed in the, the dust from his sandals, do you believe that that is the greatest call to a human being? The seven spiritual practices I spoke about last week, I mentioned that these practices are not practices that Jesus told us to do as much as they're practices that Jesus did. So Jesus did these things and then said, do likewise. Jesus did these things as a model to show us how to be an apprentice, how to be a close follower of him. These practices, along with many other practices, put you in a position to transform. Transformation is not a prayer line in a Pentecostal church service, as much as it is practicing your religion, your faith. I use that term, practicing your religion, you might identify that, because that comes out of the scriptures. It's in the epistles, it says, where Paul says, practice your religion. Jesus says, a wise man hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a... You guys are struggling today. Do you remember the Bible? That little book that you open up and you have to read every day. Is like a wise man who built his house upon the... All right, let's get the Sunday school kids in here. You guys need to go back out there. We'll get those in here. This is Jesus' call in Matthew 7, isn't it? So the foolish man who built his house upon the sand doesn't put Jesus' words into practice. He doesn't practice his religion, but he probably believes in it all. Do you believe in Jesus? Great. 
Does Albanese believe in Jesus? Maybe. Maybe he's a distant Catholic or something. Is ScoMo the first born-again Christian prime minister we've ever had? Yeah, he is. Big deal. Tags, names, I'm this, I'm that, I'm not that. What do you practice every day? Where's the fruit that you are my disciples? By your fruit, they will know. This is the great challenge to us. This is a great challenge to me. This is the confront, confrontation that comes when Jesus says to the rich young ruler, sell everything and come follow me. Can I do that? Can I? Can I sell everything? I, I really, I still have that question hanging over my head. Could I really give up my money, my clothes, my friends? Could I do what Mike and Jane Kim did when they were here a few weeks ago and move to Turkey and literally sell all my possessions and go to a place where there's 0.02% Christians and begin preaching the gospel? If Jesus asked me to come follow him in that way, could I do it? The practices put you in a position to transform. Before we worry about all those things, the the practices put you in a position to transform because these are the things that Jesus practiced. If God came to earth as a human being, wouldn't you want to know what he did and do likewise? If Jesus was just a normal bloke like you and I, who wasn't God, but just was a rabbi who had some cool Jewish teachings in the first century, mm, that changes it a bit. Well, he's just another Socrates, he's another Aristotle, he's another teacher, he's another person who did some stuff, he's another smart guy. That's how your average Aussie sees Jesus. Your average Aussie believes Jesus existed and was a real historical person. Not many Aussies would say Jesus is a fable. He's quite provable. He's more provable than most figures that we have from antiquity. But that's not the problem. If Jesus existed, the problem is who is Jesus? Because he claimed to be the son of God. And then Christians claim that he died and came back from the dead. So if Jesus is God and he lived here and he died and rose again, what he did and what he said to do is really important. The first one, simplicity there. Jesus had no house. Where's the son of man lay his head? Foxes have holes, and I can't remember the other one. Someone has a den or something. But Jesus said, I've got nowhere to sleep. He didn't have money and income. He worked as a carpenter until his ministry began at 30, but he was supported mainly by donations. And as we know, his money was managed by Judas, who tended to put his hand into the money and steal it, and then he eventually betrayed him. His career as a carpenter, his, his source of security and income was totally disrupted as he began his ministry because it was a full-time ministry that required him, in order to do the will of God, it required him to live a simple life, a simple life detached from possessions, detached from houses, detached from income, detached from wages, detached from clothing, detached from all of these things. It was never recorded that Jesus was beautiful that Jesus wore great clothes or had great possessions, his political views, his education qualifications. Not, these things are not a focus of the New Testament. What is a major focus is selling your possessions and not being tied to money and you can't serve two masters. You see, as an apprentice of Jesus, that scripture takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? You can't serve both God and money. 
you can't have two masters. You can't have Rabbi Jesus as your master and your teacher and then have this other idol that plays a big role in your life, money. Jesus, as we know, and we heard this a lot in our Return to Prayer series earlier this year, but he often, in prayer, the second practice there, would retreat to mountains, to deserts, to wildernesses, to solitary places, to be alone and to be with his Father, and often to pray for hours and hours on end. In Hebrews 5 verse 7, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Jesus often prayed, he often cried, he was often in tears, he was often crying out into his Father in heaven. Because like you and I, he was fully human. And his prayer life was the thing that sustained him. It wasn't something that he went and did every now and again. It wasn't something that he fitted in when he had time. Prayer was woven into the lifestyle of Jesus. It was how he lived, not a hobby he did when he could fit it in. We know that Scripture was central to the life of Jesus. They were amazed, remember, even at 12 years old when he's in the temple courts with the teachers of the Lord, and his parents have lost him. They come back and they found, find him. He says, I sh- should have been in my father's, should have known that I was in my father's house. Remember in that story, they're amazed. They're amazed at his understanding of the scriptures. Jesus says in John 5:39 to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, he said, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you'll have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You see, in the scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament is life. The Old Testament points like a big signpost to a Messiah coming. And the New Testament points to this is the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. So the scriptures, every time we study them, Every time we know them, Jesus knew them intimately. He knew them so intimately that he could contest the meaning and the interpretation of the Scriptures with the greatest minds, the greatest Jewish minds of his days, because he knew them inside out. And when the devil comes to him in the wilderness and quotes Scripture at him, Jesus replies with Scripture. The devil brings him three times an inaccurate interpretation of the Scripture in order to trap Jesus. But Jesus, knowing the scriptures, responds to him with a clear interpretation from the scriptures. They were intimately part of his life. He knew them inside out. So we too must study. You're not going to know them tomorrow. You're not going to memorize the Torah in five minutes. But day by day, month after month, year after year, transformation will come. When you open up the word of God, it will put you in the gaze of God. It will put you eye to eye with Jesus Christ. It will invite the Holy Spirit to come into your heart and do the work of transformation. When you're in a crisis, does the first thing that come to mind a scripture? When you've got a question to be answered, is the first thing that comes out of your heart the Word of God, a scripture? When you're unsure what to do at work and you're unsure what to do in your home with your children and you're unsure about the next decision to make, you're having emotional issues or or mental confusion, is what comes out of your heart the Word of God. Because it's the Word of God that will set you free. 
It's the scriptures that will shine a light in the darkness. But if you don't read them, you won't know them. If you don't meditate on them, they won't sink into your heart. One of the things I love most about sending my kids to a Christian school is they memorize large chunks of the scripture every week. It's phenomenal. They don't even know what's going on, my kids. It's just part of their schooling. But every week they're memorizing verse after verse after verse. And I did that. I was so blessed now, I realize, that I had 12 years of Christian schooling because what began to come out of me as a young man was all the scriptures I'd memorized as a boy. Now, is there power in memorization? Not really. Is there power in scriptures you've memorized that then become life to you? There is so much power in that. So much power in that. Without the memorization, I wouldn't have had the chance to see the power of God in the scripture. And I thank God that I had 12 years of education that gave me the word of God daily. Jesus practiced the Sabbath as a Jew, but we know this famous scripture in Mark 2, 27. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he puts himself right in there with the Sabbath. And he says, so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's greater than the Sabbath. But what I want you to notice here is Jesus giving us a definition of what the Sabbath is for. It's for man. It is for man. So man isn't made to fit in with this religious ritual of Sabbathing, this Jewish tradition, everyone needs to take a day off on Saturday. That was the Jewish tradition. Jesus says, no, 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 no. The Sabbath is made for man. The Sabbath is the blessing of God that you can rest, that you can heal, that you can worship, that you can eat, (laughs) that you can spend time with your family, that you can get out in nature. Sabbath is there so that man can once a week can rest from their work and their grocery shopping and their to-do lists and their rushing and their hurrying. God rested for a day. It's there for you to heal and to recognize what it means to truly be at rest and to be at peace and to live a worshipful lifestyle. Jesus not only practiced it, but Jesus emphasizes the need for it. Jesus fasted, as we know, 40 days and 40 nights. I'll talk about that in a moment. He lived in community with his disciples, 72. He had the 12, he had the 72, he had 500. There's many, many disciples. The 12 disciples became the apostles. But there's many other disciples who followed him closely during his ministry. There was women, which is completely radical. No one had ever discipled a woman before. And Jesus totally broke the gender stereotype of what it means to follow a rabbi. Fishermen hadn't followed a rabbi before. So Jesus totally blew economics, socioeconomic status, gender, you know, these hierarchies of the culture of the day, Jesus blew all of it out of the water and he said to all people, come follow me. Anyone can be a disciple of Rabbi Jesus. The apprenticeship is on offer to everyone. It's like, it's like the most superior elite business bank in the city coming down to some high school kid and saying, hey, you can come and do an internship with a guaranteed 150K a year wage afterwards, you can freely come. We're just going to open the door to you, you young 17-year-old. When you finish your VCE studies, just come up here. We've got 150K wage for you. We've got an internship with the biggest, best bank in Australia. We get the CEO will meet with you every day to train you and equip you and teach you to be the greatest banker that Australia has ever seen. Don't worry about your family, your qualifications. Oh, 
you can't drive yet, that's fine. We'll send a driver down to pick you up every day for work. That is the offer that Jesus gives to all humanity. The greatest insight to how to live, to how to be spiritually mature, to how to be happy, to how to be peaceful. Jesus offers the door to any person, no matter what status they are. And Jesus lived in community. Jesus wasn't the rock star rabbi you know, that had the green room with pick all the red M&Ms out of the M&M bowl because they're the only ones I want to be. And then he went out to the crowds. And then, you know, every now and again, maybe once a week, he pulled his disciples aside and said, look, this is, you know, this is the stuff. You need to do X, Y, Z. No, Jesus was there despite his status, despite his fame, despite his phenomenal understanding of life, despite his intellect, despite that he could blow away crowds and thousands and thousands would follow him everywhere. At the end of the day, he would turn aside and he would just humbly sit down and he would just eat with his disciples. He would listen to the women that were with him. He would hang out with the 72. He would sleep alongside of them. He didn't have special accommodation. He didn't have special transportation. He lived in community, humble, earthy, right down in the dust with everyone else. And finally, silence and solitude. Well, we know that Jesus often withdrew to be alone at times. But to be alone was to pray, not to be isolated from his community. A big difference. This morning, we're going to take communion. And I really want to take communion around the practices and around discipleship and around what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. Richard Foster in the Celebration of Discipline says, we do not need to be hung on the horns of the dilemma of either human works or idleness. And then I've added in brackets there, legalism or liberalism. So I want you to think of two sides here, two sides of a cliff, okay? That picture has meaning there. You can fall off each side. One side is legalism, one side is liberalism. God has given us the disciplines, or we've been calling them the practices, of the spiritual life as a means of receiving His grace. Put your hand up this morning if you'd like to receive the grace of God. If you need more grace from God. Man, I do every day. I need margin. I need grace. I need space. I need help. The disciplines or the practices allow us to place ourselves before God so that He can transform us. This is what they do. They put us... Every time we practice the disciplines, we are put in the position as the apprentice of the greatest rabbi that has ever lived on the face of the earth. Now, the challenge with the practices, okay, you know, picture yourself in that red jacket standing on, the, on, on a precipice there. This is, the, this, this is the challenge of the practices or the disciplines. On one side, we easily fall into legalism. Did I fast this week? Did I pray today? Did I do half an hour? Because if I do under half an hour, that's not enough. I need to at least do over half an hour when I pray. And we fall into this tick-the-box legalism. We talk to people. Did you pray? Have you fasted? Do you fast? Why don't you fast? And it becomes this finger-pointing, ritualistic thing. We can easily fall into legalism. Why do we fall into legalism? Often because it's easier. It's easier to do a whole bunch of boxes and tick them off and lots of us work like that it's like a task list and we feel this this little happiness at the end when we tick all the boxes and it's easy to fall into legalism 
and to look at the practices and to look at prayer and all of these things and spiritual maturity and become this big list of things to do. You know what the problem with legalism is? There's actually no power in the practices. Fasting has no power. Prayer has no power. Sabbath has no power. The power is not in the practice. Just give that a minute to sink in for everyone because it's really important to understand. It's easy to hear me preaching about these practices and go, oh, Pastor Kay, like, I can't do that stuff. You don't understand my life. Because you think I'm saying do this stuff. This stuff has no power. I don't care if you're fast. It's going to do nothing. The power is that they position you to abide with Christ. The power is that fasting positions you to think about God. The power is that taking a Sabbath once a week puts you in a position where the Holy Spirit actually has some space because you've stopped hurrying around for half a day. The Holy Spirit actually has some space to come and speak to you. The practices put you in a position of transformation. If you're taking notes this morning, which I know you all are really diligently taking notes, the practice that you've got to get this, this is the critical piece this morning, the practices put you in the position to be an apprentice. The practices put you in a position to transform. It's about positioning, it's not about doing. Are you with me? Is that making sense? The other side of the cliff, because we're walking like this, we're practicing, we're apprenticing, it's difficult. We're transforming, we're following Jesus, we're trying to stay in line with our rabbi, legalism is right there. Oh, let's just turn it into a book, you know, a thing we've got all tick and everyone just do it every week and then, oh, we're good Christians. But that's not what God wants. But on the other side, is like, don't go this way. It's liberalism and idleness, apathy. It's all grace. God doesn't care. Be sexually promiscuous. You know, rob and steal and be corrupt with your money. It's fine. Unforgiveness, it's fine. Hold on to your resentment against your family or your friend or your boss. It's fine. Like God's grace will cover it. Jesus loves you. You're trying, aren't you? Well, trying's good enough. Into heaven you come. That is the other side of the cliff. Oh, Pastor K, the practices, like, man, I'm a millennial. Like, I don't do stuff people tell me. I've got stuff to do to entertain me. Like, I can't fit the practices in. That's liberalism. And that's the, ooh, that's the other side of the cliff there. This is too much. I, I don't think you're interpreting it right, Pastor K. That's liberalism. It's ignorance. And maybe it's happy ignorance. I don't want to know things. I'm not going to go to church because I don't want to be taught new stuff that I have to do. Lazy apathy. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. So we take the grace of God and God is always gracious, but it's cheap. It doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to pay the price. We must practice the practices of Jesus in order to be with Jesus to become like Jesus and to do as Jesus did. We must practice the practices in order to position ourselves right in the center on that small, difficult to stay on, narrow rock that's jutting out there, not falling into liberalism, not falling into legalism. We practice to be there, the eyes of Jesus, to know him, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's just take a moment together.
Let's just maybe stand for a minute with our communion. Do I get some communion? Oh, thank you, dude. I knew an angel would appear from somewhere. <laughs> giant angel. Let's just center ourselves this morning. And uh, I just want you to really, as you center yourselves, just holding that bread and that blood. <laughs> we had to take communion this morning because as I prayed about this, I'm like, man, I need the cross. I need the broken body of Christ and I need your blood that redeems and sets me free, Jesus, if I'm going to balance on this cliff edge. You know, the devil wants to draw us to legalism just as much as he wants to draw you to liberalism. Whatever works for you and your little lifestyle and what you want to do, the devil will offer it to you. Even if it's being a Christian without the devout discipleship following Jesus closely a bit. He will give you all the Christianity you want. He'll give you conferences and books and prophecies and YouTubers that'll tell you you've got faith and you're great. And he'll give you everything you want if that keeps you being a Christian fan. But to be a devout follower of Jesus, to go deep in faith, that's what Jesus is offering. And that is a tightrope walk. No man can make it happen. Just like Jesus said to the Pharisees, you diligently search the Scriptures, looking for eternal life. Oh man, some of us here, I know for me many times I've had to do this. Just God, forgive me, forgive us. Well, we think we can search the Scriptures, we can go to all the conferences, we can do all the stuff because we're trying to make our own way to eternal life. You think you can rip open the door of heaven and get in there. Forgive us for that pride, Lord God. You have already opened the door, Jesus. You are the door. You are the way. We need to be in relationship with you, Jesus. And that relationship with you, Jesus, often it's out of the limelight. Often it's quiet. Often it's away from the fanfare. Often it's without the accolades. Often we mature in silence, in pain even, in difficult circumstances that's where we want to grow Jesus and we need your blood we need your body just like you Jesus let our let it be known of us that during our time here on earth that we made prayers and petition with loud cries and tears to the one who can save us you are the only one these practices won't save us it's you that we meet in the practices Jesus Fasting this week won't save us, but in the fasting, we can be transformed because we meet you, Holy Spirit, and you transform us from the inside out. I just want you to see yourself on that cliff edge this morning. But choose to stay there. Choose to remain on that narrow path, that narrow precipice. And I'm just going to give you a minute now. You just get your heart right. If you fall into legalism, if you've fallen into liberalism, if those are the things that tempt you, you just get your heart right this morning. You just spend a moment praying, just a moment with Jesus.
That's it. Just go deeper and deeper. Don't be afraid. Jesus said, learn of me. I'm humble and gentle in heart. Take my yoke upon you. It is easy. There's light. Jesus, the practices shouldn't be a burden. They're meant for liberation. They're meant to bring you into spiritual freedom. Just release your heart to be free, to be focused on what is real, to be focused on what is authentic. Just hold the biscuit this morning. Lord, we just pray over this biscuit, Lord God. We know that, again, like the practices, there's no power in this biscuit, but it's in what it represents and symbolizes. Lord, you were so gracious, even while your body was broken and hung on a cross. Your disciples denied you and dispersed and ran away, but you still were there because you believed in their discipleship. You believed in their slow transformation. And we know, Lord God, that despite the brokenness of your body, so often we deny you, we reject you, we disappear from you. We want to abide with you and you're there waiting for us, but often we're not there. We don't remain, we don't stay. We so easily fall away, Lord God. We need your body. Just take that this morning. Just take the biscuit. Just hold his blood this morning, the blood that redeems. just want you to see his blood just washing over you this morning. His red blood making you white as snow. His red blood that redeems you. I just see on some people's hearts this morning, some people's minds, it's like mold has appeared. I don't mean that to be disrespectful, but just... When things are left alone for a long time, you think of food in the fridge and mold appears. No one means it to be there. No one wants mold on their cheese. Well, it depends what kind of cheese, I suppose, is a bad example. No one wants mold on their meat or mold in their fruit and vegetables. But it appears when things are left too long. I just see there's mold in hearts this morning that's been left too long. There's mold in spirits this morning because that prayer space been left vacant for too long. Jesus is always there to abide with you, but sometimes we're not there with him. And just as you take this blood this morning, it's just going to wash your heart just white as snow. Today's a day of new beginnings. Every Sunday is a day where we can begin again. Just take the drink this morning. Thank you, Lord God. Just take your seats again for just one more minute today. So our practice practice this week um, to do together as a church community, these practices, they really allow us to be unified in one heart and one mind. Uh, Is fasting, as I mentioned at the beginning. So if you go to forward slash practices there, um, there's not only the practice of fasting outlined, um, but there's also some discussion questions there that we invite you to work through. There's a little video that just outlines fasting, so I'm sorry, but you'll see my face again. Um, And it's just a five-minute video that gives you a bit of an outline on on how to create a fasting plan. Very, very simple. And if you're in a life group, I really encourage you to get 
the people in your life group for momentum and accountability and working together. Just do a day together. Do the same day together so that you can share the experience and share what God has done. But the video will really outline to you the why behind fasting uh, and the power of it. Again, Jesus fasted 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness. So we're not asking for that long. Uh, I don't think anyone here has done 40 days or 40 nights before, although I do know a few people that have done that, not in our church, but others. I think the longest I've done is seven days. And many have done five, six, seven days in our church, which is really, really powerful. But again, it's not about the fasting. It's not about the days. It's actually about what fasting does and positioning you before God. So I really want you to have a go at that this week. And as always, we invite you to be in a life group. It's the best way to grow spiritually and to have this camaraderie around practicing the ways of Jesus. I know for me, I could not grow in my faith very well without that support that I get from the group. So if anyone is interested, even just for this series, interested, just go to the welcome desk at the end uh, and you can have a shot at that. Lord, we just uh, commit this week to you, Lord God, today. Father God, I know it's sometimes when you're in a congregation, you can feel you're drawn into things you're not ready for, a series emerges, a sermon comes and you haven't had much preparation, Lord God, but we know, Father God, that you are with us and that you are gracious, Lord God. And we don't believe that any sermon, that any series, that anything we're doing as a church is a mistake. We know, Holy Ghost, that you are leading us in a direction, Lord God. You are creating a group of people here that have a deep faith, Lord God, because you need us to reach this community, Lord God. All the practices, all the relationship with you, all the life groups and the worship, everything we do together, Lord God, is not for us, Lord God. There's nothing like the church, Lord God. No other organization exists for those that are not members. We exist as the people of God for those that aren't here. We exist as the people of God for those that aren't part of the church. We exist as the people of God to open our hearts and lives and doors in order to bring people in here that they may meet you, Lord God. No other organization on the face of the earth is for those who are not here. And we thank you for that, Father God. Lord, we practice your way, Jesus, because we want to be like you. We want to be with you. And we want to do as you did, Lord God. We commit this to you in your mighty name. Amen. Bless you.